It's a cool evening on September 23, 2014, on a farm just outside of Youngstown, Ohio. 73-year-old former Congressman Jim Trafficken walks out to his old Ford tractor to put it away for the night. In the years since he got out of prison after being convicted of racketeering and corruption, Trafficken's done a lot of his thinking out here. Surrounded by cornfields in every direction, he tends to his horses and the endless list of things that need fixing on an old farm. Tonight, there's one chore left. He pulls the tractor into the barn the way he has a hundred times before. But this time, his foot slips. Or maybe he steps on the gas, mistaking it for the clutch. The tractor lurches. The front wheels slam into a large farming blade laying across the barn floor. The front of the tractor tips up, and trafficking goes with it. Then, the whole thing lands on top of him. Over the years, people died in all kinds of ways in mafia-run Youngstown. Gangsters shot by sniper rifles, pistols, and shotguns. Blown up by dynamite, suffocated by duct tape. At one time, Trafkin worried that the same would happen to him. He never thought it would end like this. For eight minutes, he was pinned beneath the one-ton tractor, struggling to breathe. Then, just as he was about to lose consciousness, a man appeared in the barn doorway and ran to get help. Greensburg Road, 165. Tim property. Tractor rolled over on him. What happened? A tractor rolled over on him. Well, let's begin tonight with a story everyone's talking about. That's Jim Trafficant. Former U.S. Representative James Trafficant. Jim Trafficant is fighting for his life after an accident on his farm Tuesday evening. News of the accident quickly spread throughout Youngstown, and people across the county tuned into their TVs for updates. Firefighters managed to lift the tractor off of Trafficant, and paramedics immediately started CPR. He was initially taken to Salem Community Hospital, but then flown to Saney's in Youngstown, where family and friends have been ever since. Heidi Hanai, a close family friend of Trafficant's, raced to the hospital. I went into the room where he was, and it was like Gulliver's Giant. I mean, there is this man, gotta be 6'2", and he was just laying there with tubes and and all this coming out. That was one of the hardest days of my life. Oh my God, I had to fend off the media from the LA Times to the Columbus Dispatch. Senators and congressmen were calling. For decades, Jim Trafkin had been a towering and controversial figure in Ohio politics. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a guy in Congress that's saying, We want some fairness. I have poor people, I need housing. I lost 55,000 jobs in the last 10 years, and no one down here really cares. As a congressman, Trafficant railed against the establishment and championed his working-class district on the House floor. I'm going to vote today for my people. My district's one of the poorest, and I'll be damned if I'm going to lose another job, whether it has a Republican name or a Democrat name. Thank you for the time. The only person that did anything for this area was Jim Trafkin. In my opinion, as a politician, he's the only one that had stones. 
the 73-year-old former congressman who spent time in prison on corruption and racketeering charges, is in very critical condition following the accident. Do I think he was ever involved in any criminal activity? No, not at all. Absolutely not. Former Congressman James Traficant died today as a result of injuries suffered at his family farm in an accident earlier this week. The fiery Democrat from Youngstown, Ohio, spent 17 years in Congress before he was kicked out in 2002. He spent seven years in prison. Traficant died a few days after the accident, and the city of Youngstown mourned not just the loss of a leader, but the end of an era. They started lining up outside Powers Auditorium around noon, And when the doors finally opened, the crowd flocked in to sign remembrances of the man they knew as a congressman and friend. Thousands of supporters came to Traficant's memorial to pay tribute. Most were working people from Youngstown. I liked it because he was Jim Traficant every time, everywhere you saw him. That's who he was. This valley always looks for a hero. And he was that champion. You know, he's David. He, He fights Goliath. He was honest with the people, the people, not the government. If he'd ever run for office again, I would have voted for him. Most in this capacity crowd remember Jim Traficant for what he left behind, both good and bad. What a man. He uh, did a lot of good stuff. And I think that surpasses the mistake that he made in his life. If you were to ask someone about the legacy of Jim Traficant, The answer you get may depend on where you live. If you're from Youngstown, it might sound like this. He did a lot for us. He got us the Cavelli Center. He got us the federal courthouse. He got us the 7-Eleven bypass. And you know, and they try to pin him as a mobster. He was not a mobster. But if you ask an outsider about Jim Traficant, you might just get a different story. Traficant was a crook contributing to the power of the mob in the valley. Charges of bribery and tax evasion. Secret audio tapes of Traficant and local mob figures. He threatened the prosecutors, he threatened the FBI, and ripped their throats out. The woman who used to run this farm now says that Congressman Jim Traficant may have been behind an effort to kill her. You're convinced that the hiring of a hitman was at the instigation of Congressman Jim yes, Traficant? Yes, I do. He was not a mobster. He was the core of Youngstown. He was what Youngstown represented. Why all this love for such a flawed man? To answer that question, you need to understand what happened to Traficant's hometown, Youngstown, Ohio. And the first thing you need to know about Youngstown, it was a mob town. My daddy always said, organized crime is better than disorganized crime. At least you knew who not to cross. I'm Mark Smerling, and this is Crooked City, season one, Youngstown. This is my hometown. It's called Youngstown, and it's in the state of Ohio near the Pennsylvania boundary. In Youngstown, we make steel. We make steel and talk steel. Youngstown, Ohio, was born to be a steel town, founded on seams of iron and coal on the banks of the Mahoning River. Look down any street in town, and you'll see the mills at the end of it. There are 25 miles of them along the Mahoning River. 
From the turn of the 20th century, tens of thousands of men trudged down the valley and crossed the river to the steel mills. They kept the blast furnaces burning around the clock. I remember the first time I saw it, the size of the place, the noise, and the heat hitting you like a solid wall. The work was dirty and dangerous, but the pay was good. At the end of their shift on a Friday evening, steel workers poured back over the bridge with paychecks in hand, looking to blow off steam in Youngstown's bars, brothels, and pool halls. Millions of dollars flowed from the mills into the slot machines, into the high-stakes backroom card and dice games. But all that gambling wasn't legal. The guys running it were Italians with nicknames, who shuffled between the joints in expensive suits. They owned the cops, the courts, even the meter maids. Because as much as Youngstown was a steel town, it was also a mob town. Youngstown was right between two of the country's biggest mob strongholds, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. The gambling profits in Youngstown were so lucrative, these two factions were willing to kill to control them. And they often did. A mob war raged for decades, a war with a lot of casualties. Like Billy the Greek's Godris, who caught a bullet in the neck in a shootout at a dairy store and was dead by the time he crossed the street. Or Jerry the Sledgehammer Pascarella, who got a kick out of smashing the competition slot machines. Until his car was found abandoned, with bloodstains in the trunk. They never found his body. Or Sandy Naples, a Pittsburgh mob associate who knocked on the door of his girlfriend's house and got hit from behind by a shotgun. They got his girlfriend, too. So many mobsters died, the Saturday Evening Post gave Youngstown a nickname that stuck. Crime Town, USA. The mob, you know, was in Youngstown, Mahoney County. It's like they were always there. This is Gerald Dickey, a lifelong citizen of Youngstown. Dickey grew up in the 60s and saw gangsters all the time. I never was in any kind of fear about them. The ones I saw, they are always got the expensive clothes and maybe wore suits, and they generally drove a Cadillac or something nice. Working class community, you, you admire that. You know, we get our money from working. If you could get it without it, I guess you're admired. I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. At 16, Dickie worked in a dairy store called Isley's, right outside one of the steel mills. And a guy come in from Creed the Cleaner, he got these suits hanging in plastic bags. And he says to me, he says, watch these for Charlie. He'll be in to pick them up. Oh my goodness. Charlie was Charlie Carabia, one of the notorious Carabia brothers bosses for the Cleveland faction in Youngstown. Charlie Crabb, you know, he's the local guy. He was like a celebrity. He was like, a, I don't know, Sinatra or something. What did the suits look like? Uh, Italian. <laughs> Put them on a hanger on a wall over there. I didn't take my eye off of those things, you know? <laughs> sure enough, he come in there, dressed fit to kill, smiling all the time, you know. Yeah, thanks, kid, you know. He gave me $20 tip, you know, which was a lot of money in those days. You know, you're getting 75 cents an hour working in the store there. At the end of his shift at Isley's, with money burning a hole in his pocket, Dickie would head to the pool room two doors down. They call it P&M Recreation. 
there. You walk into P&M, you open the door, there's Freddie sitting there. Freddie got a pig leg. So I didn't give him a job down there to take care of the pool room, you know. So, you know, I, I, we go in there, shoot pool, hang around. And then the bookies, the gamblers, you know, they're showing up. Illegal sports betting was big. And the guys would bet on the local games, the Steelers or the University of Pittsburgh. And at that time, a Youngstown local was leading Pitt as quarterback. Then Jim Traficant, today's hero, puts the Panthers in front with a heads-up play. Future congressman Jim Traficant. Traficant carries it over. Later in the night, the gangsters would start piling into PM to try their luck. They're joking, having a good time. I was always around at that time, you know, when they would come and they go. If you're around enough and they liked you, maybe you'd get a nickname. I became known as a kid from the Islands. Oh, hey! This guy is a kid from the Islands. Yeah. He'd buy me a drink. Yeah, now I'm okay. Somehow you'd be okay from just being around. Gambling in Youngstown was a booming business. And like any business, there was competition. It was the Cleveland-Pittsburgh thing. You know, the two mobs, and we're in the middle, they would clash. There's rules there that they had, and if you follow the rules and were respectful, I think they left you alone. If not, you had to worry. And they would go after people that took what they think is theirs. If you were involved with the mafia in Youngstown or got in their way, there were a lot of ways you could die. But what made the local mob notorious, at least in the 60s, was something called the Youngstown tune-up. A bomb placed under the hood of a car, rigged to the ignition. In the stretch of a decade, Youngstown had 82 bombings, and it earned a new nickname, Bombtown, USA. What has been the reaction in Meadville over these uh, years of the bombings in Youngstown? Well, my dad kids me about this being Sin City and a pretty rough town. Do you think Youngstown is a Sin City? As far as the gambling is concerned, it's on a pretty high level. It's very serious. It isn't joking around the way they take care of people around here. Most of these bombings were between the rival factions. Gangster killing gangster. And the average people in Youngstown didn't mind that much. If they kill each other off, it, it isn't hurting anybody. Just let these gangsters shoot it up. Let them go on killing themselves. I think Youngstown would be a better place to live in. A lot of the bombings happened in back alleys or in remote areas. The gangsters seemed to know that they could carry out their deadly business as long as they stayed away from civilians. But as the mob wars raged year after year, they started to get sloppy. The first big story I, I, I recall, I mean, in the news, the big, big news, was the bombing on Market Street the busiest street out there. It was outside a very nice restaurant. On July 17, 1961, Cleveland mob associate James Vince De Niro walked to his car from his restaurant on Market Street. De Niro had taken to juggling five different cars and not telling anyone which car he was driving. But that night, the roulette wheel stopped on him. The force of the blast fired the steering wheel into De Niro's chest knocking him into the back seat. The bomb was so big and strong, it literally blew him right out of his shoe. The blast shattered storefronts all down Market Street and was felt for miles around. The falling debris snapped power lines. 
how nobody else got hurt, it's hard to believe. You know, you could look back at this thing, well, they were just killing each other, no big deal. When you do it on Market Street, 30 yards from one of the best restaurants there is, you know, and people are gonna be walking around at night, shouldn't be accepted. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Young Gerald Dickey wasn't the only kid to rub shoulders with the mafia in pool halls and back rooms. Neighborhood kids would often be recruited by mobsters to help out small ways. One of those kids was Phil Christopher from nearby Cleveland. I was young, might have been around 14 or 15. The older guys in the neighborhood, when they have their games going on, crap game or car game, and they say, hey kid, come over here. Open the door, let people in, let people out, you know. Watch for the police, let us know. They would throw in money into a pot and they'd give it to me. You know, sometimes $50, and it was pretty nice. They also had the big rolls of money, you know, nice cars and you know, women hanging around them and whatnot, you know. I just thought, well, that's probably the way I want to go. Phil came from a good, hardworking Italian family, but he grew up poor. And by his teenage years, he knew that when he couldn't afford the things he wanted, he could take them. I was a pretty wild kid. When I was younger, we would grab merchandise. We would grab cigarettes or, or whiskey. At 15, he had the kind of cash that made him the envy of neighborhood kids. They wound up nicknaming me MB for money bags. Money talks, as they always say, and bullshit walks. At that time, Ohio was home to some of the best thieves in the country. There were car thieves and truck jackers, alarm specialists and safe crackers. And Phil met a lot of them working as a lookout at the local dice game. They took a liking to me, sort of like took me under their wing. You know, I knew what was right, what was wrong, and keep your mouth shut. One night, when he was 16, Phil was hanging out in front of a bar when some of those guys pulled up. And they says, come on, you drive. I said, oh, okay. So I jumped in the car, took off, and went behind this building was a big department store. It was like about six stories high. Phil watched as the thieves picked the lock on the back door and disappeared inside. They weren't in there very long before they were discovered by the night watch. The guard inside set the alarm off. They told me on a walkie-talkie to pull around behind the building. And they come running out and dove in the car and take off, take off. 
the adrenaline it got me going, you know, and I got the taste of my first burglary with these guys. They gave me $900. It was sort of exciting. After that, the local thieves taught Phil the tricks of the trade, how to bypass an alarm system, how to crack a safe, who to bribe. And Phil was a quick learner. You know, I wasn't stupid. I may not be educated in other ways, but I was very streetwise. During the day, Phil had a job as an iron worker, one of those guys who weld steel beams on skyscrapers. But that only made him a better thief. I also learned as an iron worker how to burn with the cutting torch and started burglarizing stores and using a torch to open up the safes and in the meantime using my alarm knowledge to bypass the alarms. Little by little, I kept meeting more and more different people and kept on graduating up the ladder of being a burglar to become very good at it. Life was good. I was making good money. Brand new car paid off, you know, I was single. We're always out there partying, you know, guys, and of course girls too. When you're a young thief like Phil with a big cash roll in your pocket, it doesn't take long for the mob to notice. And eventually one of them pulled Phil aside. It was Ronnie Carabia, who, along with his brother Charlie, ran things for Cleveland in Youngstown. Ronnie was a very cool, methodical. He knew how to talk with people. It was like an organizer. Ronnie had heard about a jewelry store, quick in and out, and he wanted Phil to come along to beat the alarm. They were down in the tunnel with me where I was working on the wires for the alarm system, and I cut it. They were freaked out. What did you do? You can't cut the wire. He says, it'll go off. I said, well, it's not going off. <laughs> With the alarms down, they broke into the jewelry store and cracked the safe. Boogie in the mud. Carabia and another thief named Ray Frito dumped the jewels into bags. Ray Frito didn't know he had a hole in his bag. He was dropping jewelry on the ground outside. So Ronnie Carabia was the second one coming out, and he's picking this up. The boogie in the mud. After the jewels were fenced for cash, it seemed like the mobsters couldn't wait to spend it. All of them gambled. I mean, big time. I mean, I, me, I, I never gambled. I didn't like gambling. Throwing that money away, I'd rather go out and enjoy myself and have a good time. What do you mean you're gone? Most of the best thieves were gamblers, and one of the high rollers at a local dice game was a young burglar whose legend was growing. His name was Emil Dinzio. I probably blew a million dollars on them games, at least. And I should have my head examined for doing that. A million bucks really wasn't nothing. I mean, it was something now, don't get me wrong, but I'd be stupid to do it, but I did it. But we had so much money, I didn't care. If we needed more money, we'd just go get it. Used to go down for the chicken fights, the fighting roosters, in a barn. My brother James, he liked to bet on the chicken fights. When we would come back through sometime, we'd stop in Wheeling. There's nice hot sausage sandwiches there. And there was a bank there. So we thought, I wonder if we could rob that. We went around back and my brother took a knife out of his pocket, 
went like this in the door dam and pulled it right back. The door was open. You could go in and look. Emil and his brother James couldn't believe how easy it was to just walk into this bank. It would be easy to rob the place, too, but they had to do it when there was money there to steal. So they spent a couple days casing the place, watching for cops, and also seeing what got delivered. You just look for big bags of money. Two big bags of money went in there. That night, they waited until the employees started closing the bank. When they locked the front, we went in the back. They ran into the bank with their guns drawn, yelling at the employees to get on the ground. Put them on the floor, get the money, and go. 22,000, we thought, hey, goddamn, this is easy. I was only 16, and in them days, 22,000 was a lot. Goddamn, we're rich. We had a big pocket full of money. After that, Emil and his brother robbed banks all across the country. You just pick a nice bank. There was hardly no police around then. Do it when you want to, you know, just jump in there. Emil and James were making a lot of money. So with all that cash they got sticking up banks, they started a mining operation. Big business in coal country. We had our strip mine, and we were stripping coal. That's when we learned a lot about dynamite. We learned all about explosives, what it would do on a bank vault. Emil and his brother knew that the big money was in the bank's vaults. But vault doors are thick steel, almost impossible to penetrate, even with dynamite. But what about the vault's concrete roof? Concrete's brittle. It don't take much. I told my brother James, I said, God damn, that's how we got to do it. That's how we get all the money. And that meant that they could blow the vaults at night when no one was around. No more guns or nervous employees. Just hundreds of thousands of dollars in cold, hard cash. Nobody was beating bank vaults, believe me when I tell you. We were the only ones doing it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. While thieves like Emil Dinzio and Phil Christopher were taking down scores, the mob war in Youngstown had reached a boiling point. On November 23, 1962, Gerald Dickey was hanging around the pool hall when he heard what happened to Cleveland mob associate Cadillac Charlie Cavallaro. He lived on the north side of Youngstown, and uh, he must have did something wrong or broke some rules and uh, became a target. At 11.20 that morning, Cavallaro walked out the front door of his house in one of Youngstown's affluent suburbs. 
he lived in a really nice big house up there. There were mansions up in that area. Charlie Cavallero had made it big in the gambling rackets, and Pittsburgh had put a target on his back. He would always drive his kids to school. He had two boys. So I'm sure the whoever was out to get him knew knew that part, you know, knew his story. So they, they picked the day there was no school. They didn't know that he was gonna take them someplace anyway. He he got in the car, one boy got in the car, and the second one was running toward the car. And he turned the ignition. The bomb was so big, it leveled Cavallero's garage, leaving a two-foot-deep crater in its concrete foundation. The car, not a Cadillac but a 56 Ford, was shredded. Pieces of it would later be found on rooftops around the neighborhood. The car blew, killing him and the son who made it to the car, injured the, the other boy. Over the years, the people of Youngstown had seen so much gangland violence, they were difficult to shock. But now, one child was dead, and another was maimed. The mob had gone too far. That was really, really big, violent, and totally unacceptable by everybody. What are your feelings about the fact that for the first time in all these number of bombings, an innocent child has been, a uh, boy has been killed? I think it's terrible. Someone who really doesn't even know what's going on yet. Now you've really gone and done it. This is threatening the community. I think it's a disgrace to our town, and I don't think they're doing enough about it. You know, the horror is that it happened. It's totally unacceptable. You don't do that here. You know, we can't live in a place like that. So now the mob got no friends. It's too bad that the children have to be implicated in these uh, gangsters' problems. How can we solve this problem? Well, I think maybe if there was better law enforcement and some of the stopping of the bug and the gambling. Do you think we can solve this problem by uh, tighter clamp on gambling in this area? Yes, I do. That became the incident that drew in the FBI by the dozens. The nation's underworld gets the unwelcome spotlight of publicity. Attorney General Robert Kennedy paints a grim picture of the rise of lawlessness under the Cosa Nostra, or Mafia. This was the height of the Mafia's power in almost every major city in the nation. And Attorney General Robert Kennedy was determined to use the FBI to bring down organized crime nationwide. The government of organized gambling, narcotics peddling, extortion, racketeering, and controlling of certain trade unions. Now Kennedy ordered the FBI to investigate the Cavallero bombing. Dozens of agents made their way to Youngstown. Young Gerald Dickey was still hanging out in the pool room he frequented, but suddenly there were no gangsters waving wads of cash around or playing craps and cards in the back room. It was just Dickie and his friends. I think it was three of us, just, just young kids, really. They would trust this guy, Tony. He was my age, you know, we were maybe 16. So we're just sitting around, hanging around a little bit, and uh, in comes the uh, chief of police, the mayor, the what they call safety service director, you know, walking around. We just got up, looked at him, not saying a word, and they says, well, who's in charge here? 
Well, me and this other guy, we looked at Tony. <laughs> so they knew. <laughs> then they went in the back. And, of course, they knew what was there. And they come walking out, and they said to Tony, they says, get that table out of here now. And Tony, he was, he was scared. He says, it's, it's, it's not my table. <laughs> and they said it again, get that table out of here now. The FBI... They came in, they shut down all the gambling, all illegal activities, and from what I could see, the mob just went underground. Organized crime in Youngstown seemed to disappear. The gangland killings that had been a part of daily life ended, at least for a while. But 10 years later, the mob would resurface, just as a new sheriff came to power in Youngstown. His name was Jim Traffickant. Youngstown now has an opportunity to become the fine city that it really is. And I'm saying hooray for Youngstown. We've got a good city, and it's going to get better. But first, let's follow burglars Emil Dinzio and Phil Christopher as the mob tips them off to the biggest score of their lives. Ronnie Carabio called me to work hand-in-hand with the Dinzio brothers on a score in California. How would you like to steal $30 million? That's next time on Crooked City. I want to give a heartfelt thanks to the people of Youngstown and all of those who were kind enough to share their stories. They made this possible. I also want to thank the Mahoning County Historical Society and WKBN for keeping the stories of Youngstown alive. Crooked City is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. The show is produced by Catherine Sullivan, Alexa Burke, Olivia Briley, and Zach St. Louis. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Ryan Swikert. Kevin Shepard is our associate producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Johnny Cecatelli our local producer in Youngstown. Fact-checking by Donia Suleiman. George Drabing-Hicks did the mix. Sound design by George Drabing-Hicks and Ryan Swikert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. That's at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed Crooked City, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening. 